the Ancazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. For this edition of the Ancazine Brief, we're talking with Bonnie Adario, founder of the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Hoffland, here with Sonia Portillo. Bonnie Adario is a cancer survivor. She was first diagnosed with lung cancer in 2004. She is a grandmother, a mother, a wife, and at the time of her diagnosis, the president of the Olympian Oil Company and Commercial Fueling Network. Each year, 1.4 million people are diagnosed with lung cancer worldwide. The five-year survival rate for these patients is only 15.9%. Bonnie's diagnosis, which was stage 3B lung cancer, has a survival rate of only 5%. Bonnie underwent surgery to remove one lobe, radiation and chemotherapy treatments, and, against all odds, became a lung cancer survivor. After this experience, she felt an urgent need to impact lung cancer in a big way. In 2006, she started the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation, now one of the largest philanthropies that is exclusively dedicated to lung cancer. The foundation has the goal of working with a diverse group of physicians, organizations, industry partners, patients, and survivors in efforts to find solutions and make meaningful changes in lung cancer. And they hope to turn lung cancer into a chronically managed disease by 2023. The foundation manages several projects, some in collaboration with the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute, an international nonprofit research consortium. This research consortium, also called ALCME, directly facilitates collaboration between investigators from over 22 institutions in the United States and Europe and is supported by research infrastructures including centralized tissue banks and data systems. They also combine the expertise of scientific and medical professionals with patients' access through a network of community cancer centers. This helps to accelerate research and advances ongoing projects for both the foundation and the medical institute. In our interview, Bonnie shares with us some inside perspectives on where we are with lung cancer treatment, as well as some of the exciting projects right now for the Adario Lung Cancer Foundation. After the break, we're back with our interview with Bonnie Adario. And welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about the work Bonnie Adario is doing with her foundation, the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation, and the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute. Let's listen to the interview. Yeah, Bonnie, welcome to the Oncocene Brief. So tell us a little bit about uh, lung cancer and where are we with the uh, treatment options that are out there, uh, maybe clinical trials, maybe drugs that are really workable right now. A little bit more about the disease and the disease area. Okay, well, I am actually very pleased to answer this question today because uh, a year and a half ago, the answer wouldn't be as positive as it is today. We have had the FDA approve uh, more drugs and therapies for lung cancer in the last year and a half than have been approved in the last four decades. So we are clearly at a turning point for lung cancer survival because the survival rate, sadly, is still only 17%. And I really believe that we're going to be able to really hit that survival rate hard now. 
So when, when you talk about lung cancer, I mean, it is basically for our listeners to understand a little bit about um, the differences that are out in, in lung cancer. Um, you, the people may talk about uh, small cell lung cancer. People may talk about non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, help us understand a little bit. Well, you know, they're, they're really biological differences. Um, and as we start identifying more genomic um, uh, alterations and targeted mutations for lung cancer, we're finding that the pie chart is growing and growing and growing with smaller pieces of the pie. And we're starting to treat lung cancer based on the uh, mutation rather than the name of the lung cancer, like adenocarcinoma or small cell carcinoma or lung or large cell carcinoma or mesothelioma. You know, mesothelioma has normally been tied very closely to um, asbestos and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a changing paradigm right now that we're getting to a place where we are able to really target each patient on a very personal basis. So if you look at that personalization of medicine, um, how is that different, for example, to maybe a couple of years ago? Oh, it, it, it's completely, completely different. When I was diagnosed myself, which is now about 13 years ago, um, the EGFR mutation had just been discovered as a, a, a genetic mutation for lung cancer or a driver for lung cancer. And uh, erlotinib was just in a clinical trial. That was 13 years ago. Now we have so many more genetic mutations and so many more targeted possibilities, which include immunotherapy, that um, it's, it's personalized, you know, in, in a, in a late, with a laser focus, if that makes sense to you. Okay, yeah, it does. And so if lung cancer is detected early, I know it's often pretty manageable, but once it becomes metastatic, the cancer has a five-year su survival rate of only about 5%. Can yeah. you tell us where we are now with early diagnostics? Well, you know, um, I would love to be able to say that we're, you know, light years ahead of where we were uh, uh, 15 years ago, but we're not. We have many more centers. You know, CMS has recently approved payment for lung cancer screening, but it's still only for people that smoke. So we're leaving out a huge 30%, if not more, of lung cancer potential people. We need to stop singling out lung cancer as the only cancer associated with cigarette smoking. Uh, we don't do that to other cancers. And in the uh, New York, um, uh, uh, not New York, excuse me, the Journal of Medicine, they cite 31 diseases associated with cigarette smoking, and they're that heart disease is the first, vascular is the second. Then we delve into many cancers other than lung that are associated with smoking. So the carcinogens are a problem and a trigger. But until we stop doing that, we're still not going to get to where we need to be. We need to drive people in, even if, even if only the smokers are getting tested. We need to drive them in to, to get the test. It's one thing to have the screening program, and then it's something else again to get the patients in to actually 
see if they have lung cancer early. Because early detection, early detection is key. If you look at the, the survival rate for breast, colon, and um, prostate cancer, they're up in the high 90s. And most of that is due to early detection. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that about smoking, because I know one of the objectives of the foundation is to end the stigma that lung cancer is a smoker's disease. Um, what are some of the misconceptions that people have with lung cancer, and what do you think drives these? Well, the, the misconceptions are singularly that only people that smoke get lung, lung cancer, because that's clearly not true. You know, we're, we're, we're honing in on 30% of people that are getting lung cancer are people that either never smoked or quit smoking decades ago. Um, we just need to let people know that really, quite frankly, anyone can get lung cancer, just like anyone can get breast, colon, and prostate, and all the other cancers. It's not just a smoker's disease. And the sadly, sadly, people that don't smoke don't worry about getting screening for lung cancer because they think, oh, well, I can't get it. I was a never smoker. But guess what? Yes, they can. Yeah. It's interesting that you do mention that because, I mean, I, I mean I'm sure that many of our listeners um, really don't have the, um, the understanding that lung cancer is not just a smoker's disease. Um, and right. I think one of the underlying um, uh, concepts in some of the clinical trials that are conducted has to do with the fact that a, a lot of the, the, the trials and a lot of the, the treatment options are beyond or outside of the realm of, of um, uh, smokers in itself. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, you know... I have found that it's more difficult to unlearn people than it is to teach them. And this stigma has resided and been attached to lung cancer for decades and decades and decades. When Richard Nixon declared war on cancer in 1971, the war on lung cancer never got started. And it is the biggest cancer globally out there. And I'm sorry, since that 1971 date, we have probably globally lost 50 million people. Now, in my mind, that is, that is a disaster that needs to be definitely addressed. So this is an interesting concept. Again, um, when, you, when you look at uh, strategies in the way we communicate with people, when you look at strategies in how we treat people, we diagnose people, um, there is definitely in this war of cancer that you refer to, there's a lot of things that need to change. Um, and, Absolutely. And, uh, so what are, you, um, and, and I want to kind of go back a little bit to uh, your organization. I mean, we refer to that in the introduction a little bit, but can you tell me a little bit more about your organization, about your personal history with lung cancer um, and why this is so important to you? Well, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, um, when I was diagnosed, and, and I, like most lung cancer patients, was misdiagnosed for a long time, and because there was no early detection and all of those things, I had a tumor on my heart. Um, I finally got treatment, but, but I drove it myself, and I became really my own advocate because I really wasn't ready to die. And while I was being treated... And I did have all of the, you know, chemotherapy and radiation. And I eventually was lucky enough to um, have surgery when they were able to get that tumor off my aorta. I had a lot of time to do a lot of research. 
I've lost four family members to lung cancer. My mom was diagnosed after I was. Her brother, her sister, and her father all passed away from lung cancer. When I started to find this stigma that was associated, and for me, that was the entire reason why so many people were still, you know, succumbing to lung cancer, I made a promise to myself that if I got out this knot hole, I would do something about it. And that's clearly why we have not just one foundation, we have a second one that's um, uh, committed to research alone. So in, in, in terms of, of um, your organization, I mean, you refer to um, different activities of your organization. Mm-hmm. Um, this is designed to help other patients find um, the way how, to be, how they can be treated, um, about diagnostics, about maybe family member. You know, we, we, touch, we, we touch every single spot in lung cancer. We educate patients and their caregivers to empower them with so much knowledge that more often than not, they're smarter than the physician that's treating them. We, you know, we, we realized a few years back that 80% of all cancer patients, not just lung, are treated in the community environment and that there isn't always the um, opportunity for oncology to specialize in a cancer. You know, more often than not, they have to treat many cancers. So it's very important to us that our patients know everything there is to know about their cancer. So we do that. We have, we have a, a support group and a support and education program called The Living Room that we broadcast once a month. We're having one tomorrow night. It reaches 143 countries. Uh, we have patient referral programs. Anything that touches the patient, we're involved with getting them the right treatment at the right time. We, we support all of those things. But we're also uh, facilitating our own research. Today there's a press release out on the market for all of the patients that have a ROS1 genomic marker. We're facilitating a study to use um, PDX models and cell lines to find out what other uh, uh, therapies are out there for this particular genetic mutation. It's a very small, it can be like as low as 1% of the lung cancer pie. But if we start chipping away at those different markers and the different pieces of the pie, we can be successful. So we're touching, we've got our fingerprint on everything lung cancer in some form or fashion. Okay, now there's a lack of data on patients with young lung cancer which has led to the development of the Genomics of Young Cancer Study, which aims to understand why lung cancer occurs in these young adults. So how did this study begin, and what drove the foundation to start this? Okay, when we first started the foundation, I I think we were probably only up and running for about two years. There was this young girl, her name was Jill Castillo, and she was the coxswain for the Cal Berkeley crew team. She was diagnosed with... um, lung cancer while she was coxing for the crew team when she was 21 and died when she was 22, just a few months after she graduated from Cal Berkeley. I was so struck by that that I started to investigate because it just seemed at the time like a one-off, like a, you know, just, you know, a random thing that wasn't really a big issue. Well, I started to find more and more young people diagnosed with lung cancer around the world. So I, I called 
um, the, Wash, the, the Wall Street Journal and asked them if they would do a little article about what my findings were. They said, Bonnie, we would love to do it, but you have to prove that there is a young lung cancer. So I said, okay. So that I got, I got um, Barbara Gitlitz from USC and Jeff Ochnard from Dana-Farber to, to be the PIs for this study. We wrote a protocol. We found these patients around the world via social media. You had to, the only requirement was you had to be under 40 years old and have stage four lung cancer or have lung cancer. It didn't really matter what stage. Well, we got this overwhelming response, but they were from all around the world. One of the patients was from Turkey. Bottom line is we proved, A, there is a young lung cancer, 77% all had some kind of a targeted mutation, which is, which is huge compared to the overall percentage of lung cancer patients that have a targeted mutation, which is probably somewhere between 25 and 30%. They were all never smokers. They were all athletes. They were all the complete antithesis of what you might think um, someone looked like or you had been taught and coached all these decades to have lung cancer. So um, we presented our findings at ASCO and at World Lung, and we're now getting ready to prepare all the paperwork to get published on this particular issue. It's, that's really a remarkable result that you uh, actually received in, 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 in for, for the study. I mean, it's amazing to, yeah. to, to get this. Now, you referred also in, in your um, study, in your collaboration with, with other organizations, um, the American Lung Cancer Society, but also ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Yeah. I mean, how, how does that relationship work? I mean, I mean, you're very dedicated to um, what, what you're doing, um, but how, yeah, how is this relationship developed, and and how does it work? Well, it well, it's well, it's it's happened over time. It's happened over time, and I can I can really tell you that at the very very beginning, my mantra was that a patient should be at every table where decisions are being made about their care. They should be involved in designing clinical trials. Who better to design an amazing clinical trial than patients that have actually participated in clinical trials? Um, so that, that, that was my, my message. And now, now, that's happening. That's happening. I have worked with three pharmaceutical companies to design clinical trials. I'm going to be start, I'm starting to work with a fourth coming here very soon. And it's not just me. We're gathering patients all around the world that want to be part of the solution. You know, clinical, clinical um, medicine is, or clinical research is called from the bench to the patient and back to the bench. I call it from the patient to the bench and back to the patient because it's the patients that are sacrificing their tissue and their blood, and in lung cancer particularly, to get a tissue uh, sample or uh, to, to, for pathology purposes and, and research, that, you know, uh, many of these patients end up with collapsed lungs, and it's very invasive, very, very invasive. So patients go through this process knowing more often than not that this trial that they participate in isn't going to have a good effect to them, but maybe for their children and, you know, people down the road. And they willingly do this. There would be no research without patients donating all of these specimens for the research. 
So it's starting to happen. It's starting to happen, and it's really very exciting to see. Patients being part of the solution. Yeah, and that's always very exciting to see that because, I mean, again, that's, um, uh, it's not only about patients, it's also for patients. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Last November, the Adario Foundation, you teamed up with the American Lung Cancer Association and AltaVoice, which was formerly known as Patient Crossroads, Correct. to start the lung cancer registry. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why it was started? <laughs> yes. And, you know, and I think, I think when, when you talk about, or my goal for when people talk about both of our foundations is to talk about how innovative we, we have been. And we've used innovation every time we've met a barrier for a patient to get access to treatment or trials or whatever. You know, we're, we're, we're the barrier busters, and we use innovation to do it because it's all very costly. Um, we've decided that there's a lot of talk out there now about registries, but there's a think of islands of information out there floating around in the sea, not talking to each other. And no one is willing to actually share the data that they have with other people also collecting data and sharing. Our registry is very unique in that it's the patient themselves that enter their data. They put their data in our registry. Uh, and, and, and we're collecting all we can possibly collect, ethnicity, not just their biological data, but ethnicity, not where they live, where they were born, you know, various different things. And then they give us their permission to draw from their um, electronic medical records to validate the information they brought in, maybe bring in more that, that they forgot, to really, really have a pure, pure data set. And our goal is to to share that with everyone, everyone that needs it. So that's a unique way of, of addressing the uh, registries uh, right. information. But if you look at um, your registry and, for example, other registries, I mean, how much of an impact does it have if a patient uh, themselves, if they actually include the information there? I mean, some of them may be just about their, maybe their feelings, their way how they are uh, medically speaking. Um, but does it make a big difference? I, th- I think it makes a huge difference. You know, there's such a disconnect between the people that are treating cancer patients. And I say this for all cancer patients and actually all patients that have any kind of a terminal frightening disease. There's a disconnect um, about shared decision-making between a physician and a patient. I think the ultimate goal for a patient is to have a physician. When you sit down that very first time upon diagnosis, the physician says to the patient, what are your expectations of the treatment program that we're going to put together? And I think the patient says, gives their expectations, and then the patient asks the physician, what are your expectations? Are we even on the same channel? Do we want the same thing? Right. Right. I think, I mean, um, again, patients are important in, in their own treatment. Um, and I'm, yes. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that that your organization is really kind of trying to do that. But I mean, very often, I mean, we refer to uh, the American uh, Lung Cancer Society. We are uh, we also referred to uh, ASCO, and and obviously there are a lot of different organizations in that. Th- those are primarily yeah. focusing on on the physician part. Now, right. over o- o- over the years, how has um, 
your organization being able to contribute to um, the improved communication between, uh, for example, uh, patients and physicians. Now, keep in mind, one of the things that I, what you see nowadays very often is if you're a patient or if you're a physician, um, patients come in, in the doctor's office with a, a ream of paper uh, talking about their disease or what they think they may have. Right, um, right, right. And, and, and physicians, on the other hand, um, might have to steer away their patients from certain things. So, um, because obviously not everything that a patient think they may have, fortunately, is what is happening there. So, right. y you try to kind of, with the right information, try to kind of change that a little bit. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. We, we spend a lot of time walking patients through the diagnosis. We're the ones, when the patients leave the physician's office, 1,000% confused. They've just been diagnosed. They're, they're, they, they walk out with uh, paperwork to get a CT scan and MRI and a bone scan, and, and, and they don't even know why they're getting all of these things. They have no clue what staging means or, or any of those things. We're the ones that walk them through it. We have a 360-degree patient guide for navigating lung cancer, and it starts with diagnosis. It explains the difference between whole brain radiation and targeted radiation. It explains GPS-guided bronchoscopy compared to, you know, a different kind of a bronchoscopy. It's got a glossary in it that explains all of the buzzwords that the medical world uses that patients don't understand, not because they're stupid, just because they've never heard that word uh, before. So we're, we're, the, we're the front line for patients when, they, when they're just first diagnosed to talk them, talk them off the cliff, so to speak, and say, no, 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 Let's, we're, we're, we're going to explain this to you. We're going to make it, we're going to make it so you thoroughly understand and so you're loaded with questions for your physician the next time you walk in there. How about genomic profiling? Are you going to give me that? I want to see if I have a, a, a mutation that, that matches up with a targeted drug. Maybe I don't want to sit right in the Barco lounger if I don't have to and get an infused chemotherapy. Right. And so w when you talk about your organization and, and talk about patient education to some extent, I mean, w we are at the end of the program. To so, uh, what, where can people get more information, maybe from your organization, um, if they want to know a little bit more about how they may be able to help your organization, how, I mean, some of the funding things that you may need? Uh, okay. where, where, where can they find more information? It's, it's very simple. LungCancerFoundation.org. Very simple. That's, that's very simple indeed. Connect there and tell whoever answers that you need help. And we'll get you help. Whatever help it is you need. Through empowering and educating patients, funding cutting-edge research, building strategic collaborations, and raising public awareness, the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation wants to transform lung cancer into a chronically managed disease within 10 years and ultimately find a cure. The interview you just heard with Bonnie Adario, founder of the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation, was originally recorded on August 15, 2017. For more information about the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation and their activities in lung cancer, please visit lungcancerfoundation.org. That is lungcancerfoundation, all one word, dot org. And we know that based on this interview, you may have questions. 
So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all, and thanks for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief. The Oncozine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.